brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. Almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there Beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested Every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know Unless you really do Where would we be without THC? We know the lying to us Just don't know to what degree Where would we be without THC? I said, chat show. Greg Carwood and Company. Side chatters, so much of what we seek to do is to unravel the damage done by those shadowy puppet masters of the nefarious power pyramid and resurrect the knowledge lost from the Empire's steamroll. And from where many of us are sitting squarely in the Western world, I like to think that despite the flippant attitudes towards these past sins and the mainstream ignorance when it comes to the importance of these paradigms, we see a lot of this knowledge as valuable insight into tools and techniques we can use to interact with our reality in ways that have been denied to us. But the Western world is not the whole world, and there are places where occult and magical traditions still live and thrive. And the modern age has created opportunities to learn about these pockets and from these people who have safeguarded and maintained their magical toolboxes going back further than we even know. Well, color me interested, because I see no reason that reality's blueprints should only be reserved for power-hungry secret orders, the capstone cabal, or the wizards of marketing magic. And thankfully, due to the work of today's guest, the preserved knowledge of the Thai occult is now accessible to the wider world. His name is Peter Jenks, and he has spent years immersed in Thai culture, met and studied with over a dozen leaders in Thai magic, and has worked carefully with them to bring this knowledge out from this corner of the world to the magical main stage. He joins us on the heels of his third volume in the Thai occult series, a 500-plus page book filled with insights, interviews, and full-color images that really bring these esoteric traditions to life. A worthy effort towards a noble goal, a modern-day Johnny Appleseed of the magical ways, and the Thai occult guy himself, Jenks, my man. Welcome to the higher side. That was quite an introduction, Greg. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) I try, man. I try. But I am really excited for this. This is such a well-crafted book, full of fascinating things. Really, kind of like the quintessential textbook on the occult underbelly of Thailand, the rituals, the history, the magicians themselves. And I've been hearing you pop up occasionally on Rune Soup going back at least a year or so, which is always really enjoyable too. 
But for people who aren't familiar, tell us a bit about how the occult has been a part of your life and what it is about the Thai occult that drew you in on such a deep level, because it is such an interesting niche for a person to end up in. I don't think I've had any choice in the matter, to be honest with you. Mm. You know, I'm sure you've had many guests who say similar things where, you know, I experienced natural magic as a child. And I'm sure most people do without actually labeling it as such. And, you know, I'm 56. So when I was a child, the world was a little quieter than it is now. <laughs> and first coming to Thailand in 1991, everything just fit. It was like coming home, and everything kind of slowly went into place. I started to realize why all my friends were witches and or interested in various arts, and I started to see nature in a completely different way. I started to see the magical quality of nature and also see the level of dedication that people have here towards spirituality really and there was also it was a recent thing in the paper that Thailand's one of the most spiritual nations in the world and it's done in such a quiet way it's a part of life and when I started investigating the Thai cult which took me years to get into it because there's many levels there's many layers of this stuff you know there's the stuff you can find out on the internet there's the stuff you can see copies of around Bangkok. And it was a very slow process to learn how to get through all the surface chaff, really, before I could actually get to some of the more real knowledge. And when they started to access some of that knowledge, it became very apparent that most of the stuff available that I'd actually tried to research was off the mark. And there is no single book dedicated to the subject. There are single books dedicated to the Satyan system, which is part of the Thai magical system anyway, the magical tattoos. But there is nothing specifically on the Thai occult practices themselves. So I undertook the first book about three years ago. And it was a book to reference everything, to try and find out what we could reference, what could be proven, and then kind of annotate what we knew at that point which is why i can't read that book now it just drives me insane because it's so loose but by doing that book it did its job which i understood before i did it whereby if i could go to see the ajats and see some of the magical people and prove that i could release books officially they'd be more likely to help us understand this system. And that's exactly what happened. And without those first two books, I couldn't have done this book. And this is the one. I'm not doing it again. <laughs> <laughs> it, it nearly killed me, man. You know? <laughs> it was really hard work. I believe it. But I don't think I need to do it again. This is the benchmark. This is the benchmark that I wanted to achieve. And since it's being made, I think there's only two words I want to change in it, mm. which is unusual for an author, I presume. Yes. I've never been an author before I did these, you know. So that was the ideal. And because the Ajans could see what we'd done before, and I'd interviewed a few of them for the Satyam book, they were on board and they could tell me 
what I wanted to hear. They could tell me the story, but they could not, of course, pass on the understanding of how to create these things uh, step-by-step basis. Mm. So there's a real balance there, and different ajans could relay different amounts of information. Well, I am sure it's been a hell of a journey, and I always say progress, not perfection. I mean, a lot of people have goals and ideas in their head, and they never actually get them out because they're so worried about them being perfect, and they don't have to be perfect the first time. You can get something out, refine it, and keep going. Well, thank God for that, because that first book, I can't read it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's how you know you progress. It's loose. It's so loose. But, you know, it's been very interesting watching that progress. And, yeah, you've got to make the mistakes. You have to make the mistakes. You've got to stick your neck out sometimes. You've got to put your hand up and say, well, that's completely rubbish now. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, how are we ever going to understand something that's so esoteric? We can't find a way in. Yes, indeed. It's impossible otherwise. So, I mean, it's just having the bravery to fuck up, really. <laughs> Touche, touche. A bravery I know quite well. And, you know, you mentioned this term, ajarns, and uh, obviously that's a term that's going to be new to people. Tell us about these magical masters and kind of the relationship you formed with them through the process of making this book. Well, an ajarn is, it translates directly as teacher. And actually many teachers are called an ajarn. They're also called a crew, which is another form of teacher. And there's different levels to these things. The Ajans, basically, in the region I'm living now, which is northern Thailand, and most of the Ajans in the book are from the Chiang Mai area, and the Ajans here have pretty much all been monks before. It's part of the Lana system. The Lana system is northern Thailand. It's got its own language. It's got its own alphabets. Yeah? And they consider here that people have to be a monk to gain the attributes necessary to be able to create magic, which is basically focus. The focus that comes from prolonged daily meditation and being shown the correct, what we call wicha, the knowledge of how to create these things. In other parts of the country, they don't need to be a monk. Some people just go straight into it. There are many levels of being and the jan most of which are actually shown by something called the Kan Crew, which is, there's that name again, the crew, the teacher, which is a bit like a degree for an Ajan. And you'll see them in the photographs in the book, you see these big pots with loads of weird stuff in them, like betel nut. They're all different. Some are wrapped in red, some are wrapped in white, depending on whether their master is alive or dead. Some have got swords stuck in them, bottles of whiskey, all sorts of things. And they show the Ajan's level of expertise in something. And there's different levels of Kankru. The top one being the Lloyd Bed, the 108 Kankru, which is basically that Ajan holds the full witcher of that teacher, the full knowledge. And... You know, I've seen these things going and visiting the Ajans and talking to them and getting to know them, buying things from them, understanding what they do, buying things from them and being able to ask questions about them because then they are more likely to share their knowledge. You've got to understand that a few Westerners go to see these people and they're not just going to share it with somebody who's sat there asking questions. You've got to take part in what they do, make an effort to go and see them. 
make an effort to understand and learn the Qatar that they give you for these items, make an effort to show due deference uh, and just try and enter their world. Because without that, they're not going to share anything. It's just another person coming along wanting something for free. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a bit like, you know, my old friend used to say, being in Thailand is a bit like living with millions of wild cats. You have to kind of pull, they use a bit of food to get one to come to you, but eventually you can get along very well. <laughs> yeah, yes. there's a kind of a coaxing thing going on. And they've got to trust you, you know. Absolutely. With being older, that helps here as well. I'm sure. Yes, I bet it does. Well, let's also get into a little historical context, because we talk on this show a lot about Christian missionaries and the Holy Roman Empire crushing a lot of magical cultures pretty much anywhere they went. Obviously, this place we call the United States is included there. Mm -hmm. But in the East, even though they've had plenty of violent tyrants of their own, the spreading and adoption of something like Buddhism seems to have been a lot less destructive to the cultural traditions it encountered. How do you compare and contrast these two different situations? Well, Buddhism, if you look at anywhere in Asia, if you look at any other system, be it in Burma, Tibet, China, Japan, Buddhism does not destroy what is there. It overlays it. So in many places, especially in this particular region, now the region does not respond, correspond to the current map. If you know what I mean? It's a region of land. It's not confined by borders. But in this region, the Buddhism overlaid a very strong traditional form of magic and in the end ended up helping it to become what it is today because basically it did not interfere in any of it. But what it did is that it offered a chance to learn and become more focused and it offered a chance to bring a protection that was necessary to some of the magic that was here, because a lot of it was really wild. And some of that wild magic is still available. You can still find out about it. It's still practiced. Some of the cursing system here is absolutely terrible, you know, to the point where I've actually not put much of it in the book, mm-hmm. because it's just wrong to share that knowledge. <laughs> right. A little irresponsible. Yeah, well, it's too much. And then it would kind of unbalance the actual book itself. Yeah. So, you know, but the great thing about Buddhism is that it just allows other things to exist, mm-hmm. which the Christians did not. They just burned everybody. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or tended to. Unfortunately. We're good at so. burning. We're good at burning the Christians. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So to talk a little bit more about spirits and how they're thought about in modern Thai culture, let me quote the book where you say, the spirits in Thailand are thought to play a part in many different aspects of life. And because they are believed to be mischievous and meddlesome, are appeased with offerings and incantations. Thai spirits are known for their fickleness and unpredictability, which is due in part to the lack of a hierarchy within their ranks, although luckily they are just as easily bribed as the police and politicians, which, you know, is a perfect quote for this audience because we love that little jab at the system there at the end. But these sort of trickster qualities seem to be almost universal, which I think speaks to their validity and their nature wherever you are. What else would you say about the place of spirits in Thai culture today? Okay, we had a visitor recently, and it was wonderful to get visitors here. And one of them asked my partner, Bon, do you practice magic? And he said, well, actually, my culture is magic. 
everything is magic in this country. Everything is to do with ghosts. Everything. Even the names of trees have got magical elements to it. Every practice that Thai people undertake is generally to either placate or to have the chance to ask a favor of a spirit or a ghost or anything way up to the Buddha. Yeah, it is part of their culture to hopefully gain boon. Now, boon is like good things that come to everybody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A good luck, help with marriage, help with finding a lover, popularity, all that sort of stuff. So, you know, any visitor to Thailand, if they're driving down the road, they might see a tree with dresses hanging in it, which are offerings to that tree because the spirit of that tree, which is generally a Tachyon tree, it's a particular type of wood with an associated spirit, uh, has granted somebody a wish, so they buy it a gift. Hmm. Yeah, They give it something to feel like it is praised and taken care of so it doesn't necessarily start to disturb the people around the shrine or the people who visit. Yeah? Or you might drive around like in Chiang Mai on the way down from one of the mountain temples. There's a really bad bend, which is very typical of the roads around here. And, you know, it's covered in a string of spirit houses, which are in every house, in every building has a spirit house which is basically to placate the land spirits. You can also use them to ask favours of, ask for protection of the family. And actually, in the end, some can also act like a pricrocyp, which is a type of amulet in itself. But it's pricrocyp is like the whispering ghosts. The land spirit, if you have a good relationship, can whisper to you and let you know when bad things are coming or good things are coming. Yeah? So throughout the culture, anywhere you go, Everywhere you go, there is some sort of spiritual connection. And when we were driving past those spirit houses, I'm like, I said to Bono, I must come and photograph you. He said, no, just ignore them, otherwise they'll pull you off the cliff. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so I actually did start a photographic exercise of photographing a lot of the spirit houses, and I stopped very quickly. It was really not a good thing to do. They were really pissed off about it because <laughs> right. I'd not acquired the correct permission to be able to do it. So everything that is done here generally involves placating something or working with something or asking a favor of something. Yeah, I think that's so fascinating that everybody has a spirit house. That was one of my takeaways because, you know, putting effort into that, I mean, land is limited and space is limited. And to make that effort is so foreign to Americans, I think, but it just speaks to how important it is. I guess the mechanism is that you build a little place for the spirit and you say, land spirit, you stay there. We got this house over here. Don't mess with us, please. And we'll try to appease you in this space. It's actually a very complicated subject. And it's one of the things that's been of great interest to the West because we've lost that connection to the land. Mm hmm generally yeah i had a question recently from an american lad who was asking me about a particular policeman who's investigating all these disappearances where people just instantly disappear and there's no reason to suspect foul play nothing else and he said what how would the thai people view that yeah and the thai people would view that that you're not placating the spirits of the region because basically everybody who was able to do it got killed so there's going to have to be 
somehow and somewhere a resurrection of the skills to placate land spirits, because some of them can be astonishingly dangerous, which is why everybody does it here. (laughs) But the whole process of doing that is either undertaken by a monk or undertaken by an ajan. Uh, We are actually going to be hopefully building our own house here over the next year, and I'm going to document that process and try and get as much information about it as possible because it is of particular interest to people. Generally, they will bless the first post that goes into the land. The position of the spirit house has to be chosen by somebody who knows what they are doing, and they then, that same ajan or monk, and I will be using Ajahn Sir, who's one of the Ajahns in the book because he was a monk for 18 years, will position it correctly, that spirit house correctly, and basically persuade the spirits to go into that house and be placated and have offerings made to them by the people who live on the land. And that usually will mean in the morning you take out a bit of food, a bit of, you know, maybe some rice you've got left over, burn some incense, or usually three sticks because of the relationship to the Buddha, the three gems. And you pray to the spirit house and you give offerings. And then basically all the birds come down and all the ants come up and eat everything that's on there. So everything kind of recycles back into nature. But the whole process of this, I really need to write down because basically I think that most of the West, we have lost this. I'm sure we used to have it. We used to have this information. There used to be a system of being able to do it. Mm-hmm. It's been lost, and I need to find the correct situation where and the Jan will share the knowledge, the basic story of how to do it. And that's one of the aims for the next year. And I'll probably either do that as an appendix to this book as a PDF, or I might just stick it online. I don't know. It depends what we can find out. It depends how deep the information goes. But it's something that I really think we need to kind of resurrect in the West. And that's been one reason for doing this. This is such an ancient system. Bits of this system can act like a sticking plaster and all the wounds that have been taken out, all the damage that's been done to our systems. And there's nothing wrong with basically reinventing or giving, it's like giving antibiotics to our system. It will take out all the things that have been lost and put some health back into it. And the process of change with all magic is essential, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if we can refresh our system, our systems, sorry, of magic, and that can be myriad, there is a chance that we can have a better relationship to the world, which is sorely needed. It is. And that's really interesting. You brought up that work. I believe that's the missing 411 work from David Politis. He's been a previous guest here. And that stuff is so fascinating because it's people going missing in national parks generally. And if they are found at all, it's in very odd circumstances, not where they were supposed to be or way up a mountain. And it it is strange. And Americans just don't have a box to put that in. People are thinking, oh, is it aliens? Is it Bigfoot? But in Thailand, it's pretty well established that, yes, spirits in the forest can kill you or take you. Remember the football team in the cave? Oh, yeah, the uh, boys caught in the cave, yes. Yeah, the boys got lost in the cave. They're on Ellen DeGeneres. Love (laughs) to see them on that as well. They're obviously having a great time, and they deserve it. They did very well, those lads. 
but basically for them to get out that cave took the life of a diver and it was almost the ties saw that as well that's the price ah like an offering or exchange yeah like an exchange Hmm. it wasn't an intentional exchange but the cave spirit there took the life of a diver and that cave spirit was then basically thanked afterwards offerings were made to that cave spirit hmm in the hope that they will placate it. And some of the caves here, man, they are very, very, very odd indeed. They have extremely strong spirits associated with them. There's one cave to the northeast of Chiang Mai that I actually don't take people to. It's too weird. <laughs> and that's coming from somebody who might go, you know, this week I've got to go to the graveyard to photograph a graveyard ceremony. And I don't take people to a cave. <laughs> so... You know, it's bigger than we think it is with nature. Yes. And now you're really speaking my language, too, because I have a really strange interest in caves, mainly because I love the lore of inner earth realms and cave systems obviously play a part in that. Mm -hmm. I am kind of curious if this has ever come up in your conversations with the Ajarn, because Thailand sits sort of amongst India and Tibet, where I have heard a lot of inner earth type of talk. Mm -hmm. Did anything like that ever get mentioned in their lore or anything? Well, it's kind of, the Thais don't like going underground. <laughs> <laughs> in general, they don't have knives. They don't like it. Yeah. Mm. They will go into a cave, but in all the caves, there is generally a Buddhist shrine to try and control what is in there. Wow. And there is a thing here whereby they do not talk about it because in case it's listening, they just go in and they will give offerings to the Buddha shrine or the Lursi shrine or the shrine. There's Nagas in some caves. There's Naga statues, like big dragon statues in some caves. And they are there for a very specific reason. And most of the caves are also used at some point for prolonged meditation practice in perfect silence. Mm. And, you know, I mean, they're going to come out a very special person if they go in there meditating for weeks and months. Because some of those, there's one cave that really freaks me out. And I'm kind of used to these things. I will only take very special people. So if you come, Greg, I'll take you to it and you'll see what I mean. All right. All right. <laughs> There's an invite for you. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I was going to ask about this mysterious leak lie substance that I guess can't seem to be translated directly. It comes from caves in the forest. It's got this greenish hue and it's kind of like a stone, but isn't. What is the deal with that stuff? To be honest, I've still not got to the bottom of it. Leak lie is one of those substances that has become terribly misunderstood or misrepresented and there's too many fakes and there's too many versions of it and there's too many Thai for anyone to be sure and nobody will give a definitive interview on the subject but in the book there is an interview with a Jan Piazzi who is one of the very few people who will insert like lie into the body and his leg lie feels like a forest. It feels like a jungle. It's one of the few leg lie I've ever held and thought, actually, yeah, I get that. Rather than it just being a magnetic stone, which we have in the West, you know, it's not just that. It's something much, much, much deeper. 
but there is no Ajahn will interview about lick lie because they have precepts and they have to avoid lying. So they will not give a definitive answer to lick lie. But even Ajahn Piatsiti, who inserts lick lie into the body, he has to source it from a lick lie master. And I said, well, would he interview? And he said, no. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't get to the bottom of lick lie which is, you know, one of the things that people are very interested in. But basically, it is inserted into the body to balance the four elements within you. That mm. also helps with personal protection. And I can't get any further. It's meant to flow to protect in the body, flow to anywhere where somebody might shoot you or try and stab you and to protect the body. But its main purpose for jams is to balance four elements, earth, air, wind, and fire. Or, as they say in Thailand, dinamlom fai, which is earth, water, wind, and fire. That's how they pronounce it here. Well, I thought that was one of the most fascinating parts of the book, just because it is this mysterious substance that is apparently natural, made in caves, and requires a master to kind of find it and seek it out. And I just think that kind of stuff is provocative. Yeah, but there's also this thing whereby there's a legends whereby, you know, people coax it out of cave roofs, and the roofs of cave, and it's meant to drip down like plastic. Well, most of the Ajans I know think that's bollocks, which is the English vernacular for saying it's rubbish. <laughs> yes. There is no evidence that that occurs at all. And all this thing, well, when I'm doing it, you can't photograph it, etc. It just makes it. I'm very suspicious towards coaxing leg lie out of rock. Right. But it is something. But there is leg lie. There is real leg lie. But we have to be extremely careful and keep a very open mind as to what it is itself. Because if the Ajans will not comment on it, there is a very good reason for it. Mm. Yeah. So one day I hope to get to the bottom of it. But at the moment, I've only found one guy with Lecklai that I trust. And he, because it just feels suitably spiritually odd. What about amulets made of it or putting it in an amulet rather than under the skin? Is that ever done? Or does that serve a purpose? Well, amulets, I mean, there's been some great amulets made from Lecklai in inverted commas. Generally Buddhist, but generally they are like magnetic, magnetic materials. Now, magnetism is used in amulets all over the world. And my suspicion is that it's kind of been added to the system. I mean, it's very beneficial to wear something magnetic. The blessing that the Ajahn can give will be held by the magnetism within the stone yeah, because of the metal element within it. But I personally am suspicious towards it. Gotcha. So something you said in your interview with Gordon recently stuck out to me, and I have been itching to have you elaborate, but you mentioned that all the politicians in Thailand use magic, often pretty dark stuff. And I'm always interested in the intersection between magic and power, wealthy politicians or royal families, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but what can you tell us about magic amongst the Thai elite? Well, firstly, we don't know fully. Okay, because nobody has access to it. Right. But the two strata of the society that practice magic are the very poor and the very rich, because if you think about it, they're both very insecure. Mm. 
in many ways, and they want to back up their life using magic. In times of trouble, in times of political trouble, in times of political strife, in times of, well, actually, even in times of peace, the higher echelons use magic. The royal family basically has the call on the top monks in the country for a start off, yeah? which you know is phenomenal amount of power in that in itself. Now, when we had all the political problems, people basically tried to acquire more magical power to be able to give them the boost, to be able to win their cause. There was a very famous example. I hope I don't get in trouble for all this. There's a very famous example of when Mr. Taksin tried to remake the Erewhon Shrine, which is on a major intersection in Bangkok and one of the most popular shrines in Bangkok, basically to attempt to redirect the spiritual energy of people praying there to him. And people, some of his opponents, sussed it out and they managed to stop him doing it. Um, That side of the political divide used an enormous amount of cursing magic to try and achieve their goals to the point where like the head of the army was complaining about being cursed and saying, look, can you stop it? I've got enough protection, but I know what you're doing. Yeah. It's thrown around and some of the topper downs of this current generation, one in particular is now becoming less and less accessible because he is being used more and more by the political elite. But having a guy on your side who has got the power to influence other people can be an extremely helpful tool in your goals in in life. I'd say. And that quote I had read mentioned a lack of hierarchy amongst the spirits, but there are different classes of spirits and classifications of ghosts, right? I mean, can you flesh that out a bit for us? How do they look at the spirit world pantheon? Well, if you can relate it directly to an altar, to a Thai altar, I'm going to answer it in a very different way than we did in the book. Okay, so you can relate it directly to a Thai altar. On the lowest level, you have your ghosts. Now, not all ghosts are represented in Thai amulets. There's thousands of types of ghosts here. So this is not named people. This is not the ghost of people. These are ghost types, including the preta, which is like the hungry ghost, the crasseur, which is a, represented as a floating head, a head floating around with her intestines underneath her. There's millions of them. Yeah, They're everywhere. But they are not represented in the amulet system. The amulet system tends to have the lowest level for the ghosts of people who have died in a supernatural way. They're called pry deaths. Pry is human material. And the pry death basically lends a supernatural quality to their physical materials. And the pry deaths basically create either a pitai danglom ghost or a pitai hong. The pitai danglom is a woman who dies while pregnant. They are one of the strongest forms of magical power available in this country. And a good example would be Menak. Menak is, there's millions of films about her. There's a story about her in the book. She's Thailand's most famous ghost. Absolutely terrifying. If you're ever in Bangkok, go and see her. She's at Wat Mahaput, 
and near to Onnut BTS station, and you will see what I mean. That's the quality of a lady who died while pregnant. So there's two ghosts there, and there's the protective element of the mother as well as the destructive element for having died. And these ghosts hang around because they've died before their time. They are stuck in the underworld. And that's the other classification is the Pitai Hong ghost. Now, Pitai Hong is somebody who died violently, accidents, being shot or died by suicide, of which drowning is the best one for power itself. You also get them where someone's been struck by lightning, which is another amazing source of power. And these are very malevolent ghosts. They're angry and they're stuck again because the Thais consider it's terrible karma to die before your time in such a manner. To the point where, up until modern times, people of both of those classifications were buried in graveyards rather than cremated which was very helpful to the Ajans because then they could pop along and chop bits off and dig them up. But that practice hasn't stopped about 15 years ago. So all these ghosts are then used, can be used to bring supernaturally positive attributes into life, generally attracting wealth, protection, attracting partners, attracting people. And the magical properties are a reflection of what each culture kind of needs, yeah, the needs of the people. Above the ghosts, you have the deities. The deities include Mebur, the lady with her legs open, and Prangang, and Kumpen as well. And even if they have ghosts associated with them, the deities are the important thing. The deities are praised in a different way. They're at a higher level. They're slightly less wild. They're more sustained, and they can bring great boon to life. Above that, you have your Lursi, which are like the Rishi of old, you know, the Indian sages who came to this country many thousands of years ago. And they kind of act as the con conduits to the gods. And if the Ajans get them to work through them to bring power to whatever they are trying to construct magically. Above that, you have all your Buddhist saints, you have your important monks, and at the very top, you have the Buddha. So there is a whole hierarchy of ghosts and of deities and of higher beings and gods that the Thais are aware of on every single level, and they use them either to bring beneficial things to their life, either to banish black magic or be able to cope with malevolent spirits or just keep things under control. Mm. So let me ask you to elaborate maybe on Thai attitudes towards death, because some of these rituals and amulets that you write about do involve human tissue, like you mentioned, and it can seem a bit shocking or grim, but maybe that's just our own cultural residue or something. Well, not anymore, because on, you know, Sabrina the Witch, they were baking babies. I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's okay now to talk about these things. It's been on Sabrina. <laughs> Fair enough. The floodgates are open. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was very chuffed to see that. I was really pleased. It's a difficult thing for us to get over, but it is seen as a supernatural source of power. You know, same as a kid dying way before their time. Anybody who dies before their time can lend supernatural power. There's also the supernatural power of nature. 
And attitudes, of course, are changing. You know, Thailand is now a modern country. They're bringing all sorts of laws in. Access to these bodies is getting less and less. It's even difficult to get the shrouds that cover people who've died in accidents because they're also useful. And, you know, eventually in time, it is lessening already quite shockingly quickly. So, you know, the cupboard basically is the skills of other form of magic is coming out. They're using less of the human materials. And because people also don't necessarily want to wear a chunk of somebody's skull when going out to the cafe. <laughs> you know, it's just changing society. They're going to keep those things and people will still produce them, but perhaps produce them in different way. As far as the relationship to death goes, it's just part of life. It's Buddhist, you know. That is what I was going to ask you, though, because with these amulets, it seems kind of dark. Like you have a piece of a person's body and it's connected to their spirit. But is this what is the relationship there? Because it seems almost like like I'd be pretty pissed off if I died and somebody took a piece of my skull and put it in an ambulance. Now I'm like bound to them or in some kind of slave situation. Is there a relationship that's more reciprocal when you have a piece of a person's body in an amulet? Yes, there is. The relationship is that they get a chance to feel life. Mm. And also, they are paid for any favors given by with merit. Yeah, And merit is gained through good actions, the simplest of which is like giving to charity or being really helpful to somebody. And merit, the Buddhists, the Thais consider that merit is how they can start the climb to get out of hell. Mm out of the lower regions because all these types of ghosts are stuck yeah like with kumantong which is people find really difficult in the west because it's a child ghost these ghosts are stuck in the underworld and it's terrifying so it's considered an act of meta in a way which is loving kindness to help these things now also you can see this as a bit of an excuse for you know for using a ghost or getting a ghost to do favors for you. But in time, it is possible that some of them will reincarnate. Although there are beliefs around that, like a suicide victim will not be able to reincarnate for at least what should have been their natural lifespan. Yeah, so they might be stuck for 60 years or longer. And if they can acquire the merit to be reborn, they can be reborn. Now, there's also two aspects that you have to consider from the two prevalent systems here, the central Thai system using the Com script, the Cambodian script, and the northern Lana system. In Lana, they tend to use the actual ghost of the ghost of the person that died. Yeah? In the central Thai system, they have the ability through certain meditative practices to create a new ghost. So first they will get the ghost that's in the materials to move on. Yeah, it's a ritual called Bangsakon Thai, which is where they help them pass on. And then they create a new spirit within that amulet, within that human material. And it's a combination of, I don't know the full details, but it's done using a combination of 32 parts of the body meditation 
and various Qatar and the four elements. Now, I have a lot of chance to compare the feeling of these two things, uh, the two different ways of creating it. And it all basically depends on the Ajahn who's made it. But often, as Ajahn Apichai has said, you know, you might get a spirit that's just got some ugly, bitter old man in it, but you don't want that hanging around your neck. <laughs> so we get him to move on, and we put something in that's basically been created by the Ajahn. That can be extremely helpful. So depending on who stole your human materials, Greg, they would do it in one of two ways. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. Well, <laughs> Fingers crossed. So whatever you do, don't die by violent accident. <laughs> that's a high-stakes game. It sure is, I tell you. Mm, that's life, though. So yeah. you also write in the book how some of these amulets can sometimes be too powerful for the wearer. And in another interview, I heard you give a great analogy where you equate it to a scooter versus a big motorcycle. They both work, but if you get a bike that's too big for you to handle, you're going to have a bad time. Yeah, well, it can be difficult. I mean, everybody does it. Everybody ends up getting something at some point where you think, Jesus Christ, what have we got around my neck? <laughs> it actually weighs on the chest. You can sometimes feel like heat coming from it. You can sometimes feel a definite weight on the chest. It can restrict the breathing. Yeah, um, We've all done it. Generally, it's not too extreme. I had a Rahul amulet from my favorite monk, Ronald Poppy, that, and it took me two months to wear it all day. And all it is is a piece of coconut with Rahul carved on the front. Hmm. Yeah, so, but <laughs> it's also seen as an ability, as a period of growth, whereby, you know, we have to kind of adapt to it. We say more kata, say more of the mantra, and just basically raise our own sensitivity to these things and rise to meet it it can be seen as one of the ways to rise as far as our own abilities go so the problem in the west is that you know we'll see something and we'll often go straight to the top of the tree oh yeah let's get a luke grok's foot yeah or let's get you know a chunk of a really violent ghost's leg or arm or something, you know, and where it is an amulet. And we can overstep the mark. We can try and go a little too far too quickly. What is generally recommended, as it is in the Satyan Tattoo system, is that you start off with something that has some sort of Buddhist control, and then you can drift more towards the animism side. I mean, this morning around my neck, I've got two amulets, for example, both of which are rather special, which is a wonderful thing about buying and selling these things. One of them is actually the scrapings from the skull of my favorite monk, Luang Popinat. So I've got his flesh around my neck, and the feeling is just astonishing. And he left his body for the use of these things, by the way. He was not hypocritical in any way. He was famous for his prime materials. And he just left his body to be used by the temple to sustain the temple. And the other one I've got is actually not pry, but it was made by a ghost. It's from about 70 years ago when a monk called Kuba Mai Hong got a very good looking man and they dug up a Pitai Tanglong body. And so the body of a lady who died pregnant. And the man that sat behind her held the hands of the corpse and mixed what is called the sea punk, 
which is like a bomb. Yeah. So it was made by the ghost. Wow. So I actually don't have a ghost around my neck. I have something that was made by a ghost, and the feeling is very different. And I have the actual flesh of a very important monk. <laughs> so I'm extremely lucky with these things. I've managed to find some, be open to um, some amazing things. Right. In the end, we all find our own way. It's about you. It's not about what I've got, really. That's just an example of one person's story. All this is about the person who's getting into it and your relationship to yourself and your relationship to what you're wearing, which aids your relationship to the world. It's basically a training system through the back door. It's like training martial arts and not being told where you're going to, which is the best training for martial arts. Mm. So you're being trained to enhance your psyche, enhance the knowledge of yourself, and work with magical items that have been either given or sold to you by an ajan, and through them you can improve your own life. So it is very relatable to a lot of other systems whereby we improve ourselves to be able to meet the world on our terms. Right on. Yeah, that is super interesting. That's why I'm intrigued by this stuff, because I feel fairly energetically dense. And I would like to maybe see if the potency of one of these things really is something I could feel. But yeah, I mean, your examples are pretty provocative for sure. You got to be careful around the TSA with those things. I don't know. If they, what's, yeah. what's the TSA? You'll have to explain that one for me, Greg. Oh, they're the uh, airport police here in America. Well, <laughs> you know, some of the shit I've carried through airports, you wouldn't believe. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. And it's, and it's a Buddhist amulet. But then again, I've not been to America and your guys are really strict, man. Yes, unfortunately we are. So, when it comes to the Ajarn themselves, tell us a little bit more about maybe some of their common practices or widespread magical rituals that might not be very well known outside of this amulet enchanting tradition. Okay, well, you know, new stuff's coming to light all the time within this system. The longer I am exposed to it, the more it seems to come to light. It's quite astonishingly deep and really only comes to light when Either somebody comes forward for something in particular or a situation arises whereby they can tell me or explain what they are doing. Yeah? Like this week, I have to go and help with a ritual to change somebody's kind of life, really. And it's done remotely. They don't need to be there. And there's only one person who can do this ritual, Ajahn Sir. And it's a ritual that was invented, God knows how long ago, at the times of war, to clean the warriors who came home. Now, because if they go out and kill and everything else, they might have ghosts or negativity, some extreme negativity hanging onto them. The ritual can also be angled to remove any appalling bits of karma that have been acquired in previous lifetimes. Um, somebody who's been terribly wronged by somebody along your lineage that can impose on your present day existence. And Ajahn Sir has the ability to be able to remove that. We went with one lady who'd had two abortions and Ajahn, as soon as after meeting her, he said, oh, you've had two abortions, haven't you? We didn't know this before we went. 
And her mouth hit the floor. And she said, yes. He said, well, one of them is hanging on to you. And it's ruining your life. And we took her through the process of doing it. And she was resistant. So the great thing about being less gentle than the Thai people, Westerner, is that we could really push her through this. So the ritual would have a chance of working to improve her life. And the one we're doing on Sunday is basically to clear. Somebody's just going through a really shit time. Everything's going wrong. You know those periods, Greg. Everybody gets it in the life where the feces is flying towards the fan and <laughs> it hits. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I personally think they're an essential part of growth for all of us. But sometimes we need a help to get through it. And this is when a Thai or a foreigner will go and ask an Ajahn. The locals around the Jansers, Samnak, his place of work, if they have any problems like that, they will go and see him. You know, I've been in many times where there's been a local lady in there. She might be in her early 30s and unmarried and wants help from a jam because she's off to see a lovely new man that evening. So a jam will spend his time making her glow like gold. Wow. Yeah. So she's attractive and it gives her a chance to bring something into her life that she feels that she needs. Mm. So, yeah, it's just, it's, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's very similar in nature to many other parts of the world. It's just bigger. I don't know about other magical systems, but from what I understand, what people have told me, it's just bigger. Mm-hmm. I've deliberately not studied other magical systems, so it didn't influence what I've done. Well, that was the thing because... Uh... Like channelings and apparitions, that doesn't really come up much in the book. And I guess I was curious if in your years with the Ajarn, you've seen any spirits or actually communicated with spirits or if that's even part of their system. Well, they communicate with them. Right. Yes, it is part of the system. But, you know, you've got to be careful what you write. And you've got to be careful how it's seen. Yeah, you've got to be careful about it not being too tilted in any other direction. It should be pretty obvious to anybody reading what we've done that it's, of course, these guys can communicate with these things. Right. Obviously, they talk to spirits. That was a poor choice of words on my part. But I guess what I'm saying is I didn't really see anything like scrying or that group setting mediumship or anything like channeling per se. You mean letting a ghost come through you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's none of that. Well, there is that, yeah, but like you get many, 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 many hundreds of thousands of people in this country who might channel Shiva, yeah, or Lucy, whatever else. The Thai occult Ajans, it's called Lang Song. It's like being ridden, yeah, and the Thai occult Ajans are very skeptical towards it extremely skeptical towards it. There's only one Ajahn I've interviewed and know very well who has somebody who did that within his lineage. One. The rest, like there's one Katoi near Chiang Mai who channels Shiva. And one of the Ajahns just basically said, why would Shiva choose to go through a ladyboy in Chiang Mai? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They are very skeptical towards it because it's prevalent here. 
So the Jayajans are considered to be above that. Their samati, their focus is such whereby they will not get possessed. They can sit and communicate correctly without having to do any of that. So I've got to be careful here not to upset people, but that is their words, whereby they are above it all. If a jhan went into trance, sometimes you can be possessed by your satyam tattoos. Yeah? But again, if a jhan did that, all these devotees would lose respect for him hmm. because he's meant to have the control. See, I like that. I mean, that's why we look at different cultures to see different ways of interacting with these spirits. Of course, if they all looked at things the exact same way, there'd be no difference. There'd be no reason to single out the Taya cult. So I do like hearing those little subtle differences. And we've talked about a lot of magical things today, a lot of powerful energetic talismans and amulets. If I was to play devil's advocate for many of the Americans listening, I'm sure they've been fascinated. I'd like to think that even though we're Americans, a lot of this audience is pretty open-minded or we wouldn't be doing this, but there are still attitudes towards the occult and a general dismissal of it. I mean, what would you say to Americans who might have the attitude of, well, I never pay attention to the dead or land spirits. I don't have a spirit house. I don't pay any attention to any of that stuff. And my life is going just fine. I don't see a need for amulets or spirit houses. What are they maybe missing? Is this a more enriching situation or what would you say to them who are just kind of cynical? Well, I would say, well, I'm really glad you're happy because that's the only thing that's really important. Mm. Fair enough. Number one goal in life, man, is be happy. <laughs> and there are a million routes to that happiness. And some of us have to make more of an effort because of whatever life deals you. Yes, we're all different people. We're all trying to find a way through our existence. But number one goal in life, you've got to find your happiness. And that can be a great challenge with the trials that life brings. And for some people, they turn to various forms of spirituality. For others, you know, some people are a bit like the equivalent of a spiritual brick. <laughs> Guilty. It's, it's, yeah, it's just completely beyond their realms of existence. And that's always been the case. Throughout the history of mankind, there's been a few people who encompass the magical realm who enter the magical realm. And it's just another bit of an offering. It's whatever we need. We need to make available whatever is needed by the general populace and how, for some people, adopting a form of spirituality, natural spirituality, is an essential aspect of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. And so let me ask you this. Have you had anyone who came to you with strange experiences after reading your book do you think that the power in something like an amulet can translate through a photograph or anything like that i think we can be influenced in many different ways but that might be the influence of the self on ourselves <laughs> possibly and that's a big part of it don't forget yeah belief is huge aspect of every form of magical system well, let me hit you with this. I actually waited till the end to bring this up, but I'm convinced there's a lot of power in this book and you document some pretty intense rituals and include those photographs of what seem to be pretty potent magical amulets. And I say this because 
I've been reading it all week in preparation for today, and yesterday was pretty much just consumed by the book. Well, even though I repeatedly talk about how energetically dense I am, like a brick, I don't tend to sense spirits or anything like that. But last night, I woke up from one of the most intense dreams of my life, very much like I was in the middle of a magical war. I woke up short of breath and covered in sweat, and I had anxiety about my own surroundings like never before. And I did not feel alone. And I walked out to the kitchen to kind of collect myself, and I noticed that the time was 2.55. I thought, huh, that's interesting, being the witching hour and all. I get some water, I take a leak, as you do in the middle of the night, and then I look at the time again, and it's 3.05. And this was just freaky, because somehow 10 minutes passed, and what really could have only been two or three, and it was all quite weird, and not the sort of thing that happens to me, and I'm convinced that it had something to do with this book. It's got spirits in it, and now they're in my house, Jenks. Well, you know, say hello to them when you go home. Uh, be <laughs> be nice to them, yeah. And maybe you've just read something in there that struck a chord. It's possible. There's an odd use of language in there as well, which is deliberate. The book also folds back on itself, so it is not linear, and that is deliberate to make people read it more than once because it's too big a system to read a book once. Also, most of the amulets in there are considered to have life, to be alive. The magicians are very powerful. They can do more than what we know. They are not on our realm. And I say our realm, as in the human realm, which includes me. And, you know, reading about anything can bring a change. Uh, it jogs something loose, for sure. Change should be the only constant in life. Mm. Because if we can change, we can adapt. If we can adapt, life stays fluid. If we don't change, just look at the diseases that are formed through stagnation. Mm. Yeah, so the unfolding of the flower is the important thing. Poetic. Yeah, that's the important thing. Just allow something to open just to get a window through the dirge that often is seen in our lives. Mm. There's more. There's always more than well that. Well said. And man, I just think this has been a really great time. I think the book is fascinating. I love to amplify the stories and knowledge of lesser known cultures. Glad we could do it. Before we go, do remind people of your website, the book, the Facebook page, anywhere where they can follow the ongoing work you're doing. Sure. The Facebook page is called The Thai Occult Books. Dead easy. Um, the best way to find the website for the book is to go to my own website, thetyocult.com, and just click one of the two books on the cover, and that will take you to the publisher, who is uh, Timeless Editions of France. So that's all reasonably easy because it's all got the tire cult in all the titles. <laughs> Perfect. And any idea what is coming next? Is there another volume? Well, I was thinking about doing an appendix, but, I, you know, I'm, I, to be honest with you, I'm exhausted after doing this book. I and I'm going to wait until it naturally occurs. I can't consider doing any more writing until really this settles. The knowledge in the book has got to settle within the people who read it. 
Uh, I might just release it as a quick PDF. I don't know yet. I might just stick it on the Facebook page as it arises. The next project I would like to do after arrest is the photographic one because I have an access to their world and I would like to tell the story of this book purely in photographs. Yeah, I think that would be great. And so I'm going to have to buy a new camera, <laughs> which is a great excuse to buy medium format digital. But um, Indeed. And luckily they're about to release a cheaper one. So if we sell this book out, most of the profits from this book will go into a new camera and then we'll try and get something in bookshops worldwide where there is no profit in that sort of thing. So mm. this is kind of just something that I really have to do yeah. more than anything else. Well, the universe provides, and I wish you luck on the continued journey. Thank you very much. It's been lovely. You got it. Sweet spirit of Buster Scruggs and hallelujah, people. A deep look into a small pocket of the world with Peter Jenks. All right. A show and guest I definitely enjoyed. Peter's book really is a work of art and completely worth getting into. And I know there have been a lot of esoteric and magic type of shows lately, all right in a row. We'll get back to conspiracy soon, I promise. But I got on a little esoteric anthropological kick after Dr. Jack Hunter sent out a flurry of guest requests. John Michael Greer, he was a little magic in nature. And then Patrick Harper talked a little bit about initiation rites of African tribes and how that relates to the Greys. And a few other anthropological insights. But then, of course, we have a hyper-focused episode on the traditions of the Thai Ajarns. And I think it all kind of fits under the THC umbrella. But I could understand how some people might feel like we're getting a bit singularly focused. And maybe a tad off-topic. But, like we've done many times, it is nice to highlight these under-the-radar subcultures when we know this is the type of thing that many governments and empires and priesthoods have tried to do away with. Maybe not the Ajarn specifically, but long-standing, well-developed magical traditions for sure. So I do like to explore them when we can. I think it kind of helps us to just better understand reality in general. Also, there's usually a cultural layer to magic that can be pretty specific. So if you only examine magic from one tradition or one region, you probably would have a skewed view of it and how it works, or at least maybe of its limitations. So I feel like if we look at a lot of different traditions, we can kind of discern which aspects are culture-specific and then what the real nuts and bolts underneath all that is, the things that seem to be more universal, and then all that in turn helps us to unpack that high-level magic and ritual more academically, doesn't quite sound right, but at least maybe more accurately or with more nuance. Because I don't think it's a question of if high-level ritual is carried out in front of us, but getting better at identifying it is always going to be a good thing. And there was a fair amount of dark stuff talked about today, using human tissue and amulets and whatnot. Regardless of if it's a good idea to mess around with this, I still want to understand how it all works and what people are doing. It seems reasonable to me that spiritual energies would be connected to organic tissue. Maybe the spirits do enjoy being close to life. I don't know. But I am intrigued, and now I have a Rahu amulet, and I'm making offerings with the moon cycles. 
Sounds like I got a new pet or a Tamagotchi, but hey, if Rahu is going to help me out, the least I can do is make him a cup of coffee on the full moon, right? I feed a fish tank every day, and they don't do shit. So there's that. It's definitely going to be a nice test case for me, and I'm really thankful to Peter for putting something like this in my life from such a specific place made by a local monk. It's just very cool to me, the whole thing, the path that this little amulet has taken. Hmm. That said, in terms of future shows, though, maybe you guys can help me out a bit, because I do really want to do a few episodes on a couple of topics that I have not had very good luck securing guests for, and those would be directed energy weapons in the California fires, maybe a deep dive into the prison industrial complex. I think that could be two hours we haven't done in the past. But also, I've been hearing a lot about Israel's Talpiot program and the new Silk Road initiative and how these things kind of coalesce. But if you have guest suggestions for those topics, obviously, they're separate things, but get at me or really tell them to get at me. I'm ready to go hard in the paint when it comes to the conspiratorial. and I think those are some nice entry points while avoiding the political. They just don't seem to be coming together. And maybe that's why I need to put out the call. So, there it is. I did think this was pretty unique, though. A lot of us probably don't know too many people with insight into the Thai occult, and now we know a little bit. Of course, the first hour is out there for everyone, and the second hour is for Plus members. And in today's episode, the second hour gets into things like the history and the lineage of the Thai spellbooks. The art of Thai ritual tattooing, Thai fairies, the processes of praising Rahu, the rare one-eyed coconut, garden spirits, Thai herbology and supernatural plants, cats in the Thai occult, and of course, cat fetus amulets. Is any show complete without cat fetus amulets? I don't know. But it's all provocative, interesting stuff, and I really appreciate those willing to support the show who think what I do is worth the price of admission. I'd like to think you get $8 worth of insight a month, but you be the judge, and I'll just keep plugging away. But I hope you all had a good holiday. We got one more show coming out in November. It does have a magical wrapping, but it is very practical and talks about current events and the conspiratorial and archetypes, how basically everything is archetypes. And I will leave it at that. And for now, I'm getting out of here. That's my contribution to spotlighting some very committed and disciplined people out in the world. Much love and respect to them. Do check out more Peter's work where you can. And I'm getting out of here. Your move, secret keepers, culture shapers, and esoteric suppressors of the capstone cabal. Your are